everyone, and welcome to another exciting edition of When Movies Were Good, down here being recorded live in Melbourne, Australia, with your humble host, Rachel, and my special weekly or bi-monthly guest star, Matt. How are you doing today? Yes, I'm uh, good. Whatever frequency we're in, I am always happy to be with you. Oh, fantastic. So, welcome to When Movies Were Good. We are doing a Rod Steiger double today, which was actually requested by one of our listeners. So, we appreciate that request um, out there. We, we do appreciate you listening. And Rod Steiger is a very interesting character actor whose career spanned many decades. He worked in many different sort of genres of film, some better than others perhaps. Some of the films that he did in the 1970s were a bit interesting, but he really is... You have me intrigued now. Yeah. Some of the films, you know, like some other uh, American actors, he went over to Europe in the 1970s and made some interesting films out there. Actually, a lot of a lot of um, American actors went to Europe and made some interesting films in the 70s was and that, 80s. Was that when he made Waterloo? I think so, yes. He did make that out there. And also, like, I'm thinking of one of my favourite people, Anthony Perkins. He made some really interesting films in Europe in the 1980s, <laughs> including um, one about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and uh, one where he played a vampire. So uh, I always – but I, you know, if they're a good enough entertainer and actor, they always manage to sell the material. So we are doing two of Rod's well-known films. Now, remember that Rod Steiger was not sort of the – archetypal sort of leading man he was mostly well known as a character actor and he was a brilliant character actor he didn't have sort of the leading man looks or, or whatever but he was a well-trained actor who sort of came out of that would you he came from broadway and he also came out of sort of the method acting school Matt, I believe he did study with Elijah Kazan and Lee Strasberg at the actor's studio in New York for a period of time he did look at home with with um, Marlon Brando. He did, yes. So the two films that we're doing are two films that are probably more well-known because of the co-star, the male lead that's technically in these films. So while Rod was an integral part of the film, the two main leads are probably known. So we're doing On the Waterfront, 1954, Elia Kazan, and then The Harder They Fall, 1956, that was Humphrey Bogart's last film and, of course, On the Waterfront was one of Marlon Brando's earlier star starring roles that was a great vehicle for him and a very awarded film. But before we get into the two films, Matt, let's just discuss a little bit about Rod Steiger. So he was born in 1925 and he passed away July 9th, 2002. So he had a, he had a pretty good run. And he was known for portraying sort of offbeat, um, out there and crazed characters. And, um, but he was a very charismatic actor and he did study method acting. So he was sort of affiliated with Lee Strasberg of the Actors Studio and Elijah Kazan, who had started that as well. So one of the films we're discussing today was when he starred as Marlon Brando's mobster brother Charlie in On the Waterfront 1954. Now, my mum was telling me, the famous Rose, uh, she really enjoyed his performance as Sol in The Pawn Broker, 1964. The role I'm most familiar with him 
uh, and that any time I think of Rod Steiger, I always think of this role and that that's his Academy Award-winning performance in, in The Heat of the Night, which I actually need to re-watch. I've only seen parts of it, and that's when he won, won his award. So he was born in New York, in West Hampton. Now, his mother was an alcoholic, so she had a very detrimental effect on his life. He was quite embarrassed by their situation. And a lot of actors have that. They have the, these interesting, hard family dynamics and they get into acting um, as a way to escape that. So, so he did that. Um, now, he was actually um, in World War II. He served in the South Pacific. And then like many other actors, you know, on the GI Bill, et cetera, he came home and then started playing his trade as an actor. So one of the first... opportunity for a lot of people at that time. Yeah. There's actually a lot of actors who, and even some Vietnam vets, one of my favourite um, sort of actors, a guy called Robert S. Woods, who's predominantly like a, a, a serial actor, a serial soaps actor. He was um, like a Green Beret in Vietnam and then came back and got decided, hey, I survived, so I'm going to get into acting. So, uh, Grant, uh, one of my favorite photographers, he was um, like uh, got through on this GI Bill as well. Yeah, so basically, you know, the GI Bill would sort of help them with a place to live and give them a stipend, I guess, to study, and then they could pretty much choose what they wanted to study. So some of them went into into acting, and actually, I didn't know this, but we had discussed the film Marty with um, Ernest Borgnine in it, and he was actually. Um, the person to play Marty on Broadway, uh, Rod Steiger was, and I can really see him in that role. So Rod appeared in some really well-known films. He appeared in Oklahoma. He appeared in Al Capone, 1959. A lot of people say that's one of the best portrayals of Al Capone. Um, he was in David Lean's Dr. Zhivago. And then, of course, he played, Matt, you enjoyed him playing Napoleon in Waterloo in 1970. Yeah, so for ages that was the first um, uh, and only movie I'd seen him in. And so, so it was quite a, difficult to almost adjust from him being the little Corsican uh, officer in early uh, 1800s France to being a sort of a half-mobster uh, boxing uh, chief uh, with a really Bronxy accent. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he definitely, he also played, um, I, I wouldn't mind, I think we're going to borrow that film, Napoleon, off you, uh, the Waterloo yes, film, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and um, also he played Mussolini in The Last Days of Mussolini, 1975, which I wouldn't mind. And then, of course, being a horror movie. Naturally. Yeah. Um, and then being a horror movie fan, of course, I remember him as the disturbed priest in The Amateurville Horror, 1979. I do remember that. And he, look, he continued to act a little bit in the, you know, Ray Milan mode. He just continued to keep on acting as long as he possibly could. Um, and, you know, he had open heart surgery in 1979 and then he sort of moved on to sort of the whole B-movies area. I don't have a problem with that. I think as long as you keep on acting and you keep working, um, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, he also, he worked well into the 90s and, you know, he appeared in, you know, miniseries like Sinatra 1992. Um, so long as your heart's in the right place, Buzz. Yeah. And heart surgery, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> and he was actually, um, uh, yeah, 
it, you know, he even auditioned for things like Ron Howard's Far and Away, although he didn't want to wear a wig. So I believe he, um, he decided not to go in that. Uh, so he was, you know, he worked right through until his death, basically. So, you know, he had only minor roles, but he worked, you know, he worked through right until he passed away. So he was an actor and wanted to work. And so we're going to discuss two of these very famous films that he was involved with. So On the Waterfront, 1954, I guess they're classing it as a crime drama, directed by Lycazan. Now, Lycazan only directed, I think I counted 19 films, but he is often considered one of the greatest directors, like an actor's director. And when I say that, it, it, he was really, because he was into all that method acting, and, and you remember him from working with James Dean in East of Eden. Yeah, so it's quite different from a lot of other directors when it comes to method acting, and they're like, oh, God, this again. <laughs> I don't care about your motivation. Your motivation is your paycheck at the end of the week. Just say the line and stand there. Yeah, whereas Elikazan was really, <clears throat> I was sort of reading about his life, and because he'd been an actor before he got into directing, someone had said to him, look, Elia, you're really talented, but uh, not at acting, but something else. <laughs> he ended up getting into directing uh, on Broadway and then, of course, when the movies were taking off. And, again, he's another European immigrant. You know, his family were Greek and he was born in Constantinople, actually, and came over and obviously was more culturally American as well, but had worked his way up and got trained and worked with actors and worked at a theatre company. And uh, very much, you know, I guess you could sort of compare sort of to Orson Welles and a few other people who came from the stage and then went over into films and learnt the trade. But back then you could learn the trade of films. Now you're expected to know everything when you get there. So, Yeah, it is uh, qu quite a process. And interesting that you mentioned the beginning in Broadway because probably that's what gave him a, a bit of a sympathy for the process of method acting for the actor because uh, I think that's where it mainly flourished um, in the stage because you were able to get completely involved in the character, whereas a uh, film, uh, you kind of have to, although me many method actors forgot, you have kind of have to um, remember that you're, you're only part of a big puzzle um, where they're sort of uh, putting a story together with uh, the photography and the editing as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, like you had a, like for somebody like you at that time, you would have really thrived in that environment because you essentially could have gone to Hollywood and just been like a tradesman and learnt your trade and worked your way up sort of thing, whereas now it's, oh, don't you know how to do this? Don't you know how, you must know how to do all this sort of stuff? And I guess learning it in school is not quite the same as being on the set and doing it. I would much rather learn it that way, so... Yeah, and then uh, these days when you um, finish any kind of um, qualification, you're like, okay, I've got this qualification now, can I start? And they're like, no, get to the end of the queue. Yeah, and also, where's your experience? And it's that horrible catch-22. So getting back to On the Waterfront, I mean, On the Waterfront is, um, it was a critical and commercial success, and it received 12 Academy Award nominations, and it won eight of them, so Best Picture, Best Actor for Marlon Brando. So for Eva Marie Saint who was chosen by Eli Kazan, this was her sort of first film role, first major film role. She won for Best Supporting Actress and then Elia won for Best Director. And uh, according to the American Film Institute, it's the eighth greatest American movie of all time. And also 
one of my favourite people, Fred Gwynn, is in the background as one of the longshoremen floating around one of the scenes. So I do remember seeing him just out the back there, So, which was good. So basically the plot of this film, Matt, is mob-connected union boss Johnny Friendly, played by Lee J. Cobb, who's fantastic in the film as well, basically controls the waterfront where they work um, in the New York sort of city area um, with an iron fist. And basically Terry Malloy, Marlon Brando's character, is a dock worker, and Rod Steiger's character is his brother who works for, for the mob boss, Johnny Friendly. Kind of his accountant slash uh, yeah. senior hitman. That's right. And so Marlon Brando's character had been a promising boxer and then Friendly got involved, so the mob mob guy got involved and instructed his brother Charlie, so Rod Steiger's character, to have Terry deliberately lose the fight so that he could win Friendly, the mob boss, could win some money by betting against him. And that sort of sent Terry on a bit of a downward spiral because, as he said, he could have been a contender, he could have been somebody. And uh, somebody gets killed. Uh, from Friendly's Enforcers, one of the people that Terry knows, and uh, Joey, that the gentleman that got killed, Sister Edie, Eva Marie Saint, gets involved and wants to find out what's really, really happened to her brother. So essentially it's about Marlon Brando's character, Terry, going up against this system of corruption on the waterfront and confronting the corruption in his own way. And it's, um, it's a very interesting film Probably not necessarily my favourite sort of topic because I'm not really into anything to do with the mob, but what did you think about it, Matt? Well, it does give a bit of a hint as to why in American culture they seem to have a much more negative perception of uh, unions. Like in Australia, we tend to have a much uh, more positive view. We see them as a necessary protector of, of sort of working conditions, mm-hmm. but um, for various... Uh, through various uh, historical anomalies uh, in America, it has often come to be connected with uh, uh, sort of n- negative, uh, uh, negative corruption, and mm-hmm. uh, those are probably samples of how sort of uh, processes meant to protect workers are um, uh, exploited by um, uh, middlemen of authority at times. And it also shows the horrendous conditions that a lot of different types of industrial and factory and dock workers used to have to do endure. Like up until that period, it was quite common, um, especially in shipyards, uh, a lot of people never actually had day-to-day jobs. Um, yeah. uh, you actually had to sort of, you almost had to like micro-apply for a new job every day. Yes. Uh, like even a, in a dock, big dockyard like uh, where the Titanic was built in Belfast, uh, Unless you were like, um, I think like a, a senior apprentice or like a special elite apprentice, the bulk of workers were actu- actually had to go up to the gate by a specific mm. time each day and mm-hmm. um, uh, get hired or not hired on the day. Yes, I, I, yeah, I do actually recall reading that in Belfast that they had to do that. And, and uh, a lot of these tradesmen slash you know, dock workers slash, you know, yeah, because it's such a, you're just fodder, I guess. So you just turn up, you know, you see the guys turning up at the gate, any work on today, yes, come in, no, go away sort of thing. And it's just a terrible, terrible way to live, you know. 
because you really don't know where your next meal's going to come from. So essentially, it's this going to be meal, getting more like that today. Yeah, and now it's gone back to that. There was a period of time where it was like full-time, 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 permanent, part-time. Now, at least here in Australia, it's kind of unfortunately getting back to this more casual system of employment, which is just <clears throat> having worked casually um, for a lot of periods in my own life, it's a really hard way to live. It does suit some people, but they're normally people that have multiple streams of income. So um, this film is really has a, a definite look about it. And I felt like Kazan did get some really good performances out of his stuff. The great Carl Malden's in this film, and he's always a very comforting presence. There were some really other well-known people in this film as well, like Martin Balsam's in this film. Obviously, I mentioned Fred Gwynn. Um, Nehemia Persoff, who, uh, who I know, Nehemia Persoff's actually in the other film that we are discussing, and he was in one of my favourite films, Some Like It Hot. So I heard the voice and I was like, oh, hang on, is that? <laughs> but um, I guess for me, the film was a little bit meandering. So while I did like the film, it's probably not high on my list of, uh, of my favourites. But I, I, I think Rod Steiger was good in the film. I really liked the, f the first um, 20 minutes and the last half an hour. I think uh, there was yeah. kind of a bit of a character exploration of uh, Brando's character in the middle that may not have like uh, progressed as well. Like maybe they were trying to get into a sort of a moral recognition. I really love the uh, the courage everybody was showing in the last half an hour. Like not that I'm that uh, religious a person, but um, sort of the probably the five mi entire minutes of my life that I've considered religious life was based on um Carl Malden's character showing that um that bravery to encourage someone to. Uh, uh, do do the right thing, but then I need to remind, remind myself that's not probably how it works for most of them in reality. In reality, most of the time, you're just going to be complimenting um, uh, drawings done for by the pet by the Sunday school group, right? <laughs> you know, and it's it's interesting to who, who was also like Frank Sinatra was originally um, considered to be cast that in the Terry character. That concept. Yeah, um, but he's from Hoboken, and that's where the film was being made at the time. Um, and then uh, even people like Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward were considered for some of the roles. The part of Edie, so even Marie Saint's role, was uh, offered to Grace Kelly, but she decided to make Rear Window instead. So I think that was a good call for her and a good call for even Marie Saint. Uh, and... Yeah, and then Lawrence Tierney, who I always know Lawrence Tierney from one of the last roles that he did, which was in Reservoir Dogs, like in the early 90s, but he was obviously a very well-known classic film actor as well. He was off originally offered the, um, the role that Rod Steiger played of Charlie, but he wanted too much money. So there's a lot of interesting parts to how this film got made, who wanted to make it, uh, some of the uh, scripts, um, that were submitted for the film. I think even Arthur Miller was involved at one point. But a lot of very well-known actors now, you know, Al Pacino, Anthony Hopkins, uh, they often attribute a lot of their interest in acting to Marlon Brando in this film. Well, behind so, every great artist, there's a, a major idol. It's the same way like a generation later, Raiders of the Lost Ark inspired a lot of filmmakers. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, um, um, 
I don't think it's impossible that Sinatra could have um, played that part. I mean, you saw, when you saw him in From Here to Eternity, he could play that uh, tragic martyr role, but it would have completely changed the tone of the film. Yes. Uh, look, I, look, I did enjoy enjoy the film, but I don't think it's... I think sort of the... I'm really just... I don't like anything to do with the mob. So I, uh, I just... Too many student films. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I've never seen Godfather. I've never seen Goodfellas. I've never seen... I just don't have an interest in it. Like one day I, I want to sort of make myself watch The Godfather and the sequels, but I'll be making myself watch it. It's just not a natural thing that I'm that I'm interested in. And that's funny because I'm interested in true crime, but just not mob true crime because I just think it's all so pointless. It's so, so I listen to this uh, true crime podcast, I Catch Killers, and uh, so yeah. many people are from bikey backgrounds come out of it and I'm like, what's the appeal? They're glorified drug dealers. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just, yeah, there's something about mob films I'm just not, not interested in, you know, and it's just, yeah, I guess it's from, you know, sort of the, the mafia families of Italy and Sicily and all that sort of stuff. And I just think, God, you've come to a country for a new life. Why on earth would you start falling back to what was happening in the old country? I just don't get it. So that's just me, but. <laughs> well, it's not just so, the underlings that and the uh, destitute that come across, uh, the, also the people escaping the law and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's that's very true. And um, people want money in a new country just as much in, as in the old country. Yes, that's very true. So we're going to move over to a film that I really enjoyed. It was a lot more up my alley, The Harder They Fall, 1956. So this one was directed by Mark Robson. Uh, screenplay by Philip Jordan. Now, this is uh, sadly Humphrey Bogart's last film, but Rod Steiger plays one of the sort of the second male lead in the film, I guess you could sort of say. So the film is about um, Mick Benko, which is Rod Steiger's character. He hires a former journalist who's since lost his job, Eddie Willis, to promote Toro Marino, a fighter who's been brought in uh, basically... Uh, as a show fighter, he can't actually fight, but he looks good and he looks the role, he looks the part. So he comes in to promote some of these national level fights and it's all based on money and how much tickets they can get at the booth and all the rest of it. But there's some really sad stuff going on behind the scenes to do with the fighter himself and to do with other fighters who get killed in the process. And um, it's sort of an awakening for uh, Humphrey Bogart's character that what he's been involved with. And Rod Steiger sort of plays a very sleazy sort of boxing boxing promoter who doesn't really care about who lives or who dies. So what were your thoughts on this film, Matt? Well, it, I thought it was a very powerful film. And although I didn't know it was Bogart's last one until um, afterwards, there was sort of this uh, swung song quality because he did look a lot older in it, and so he uh, would have been dealing with um, some of his illness by that time, but that did not affect his uh, performance in any way. He was as strong as he was in Casablanca and uh, those types of films. And it is fascinating that it was uh, uh, like based to some degree on, on real issues in the industry at the time. Um, yes. I found, um, and like we already know from Dial and from... Uh, like, this was corruption on a whole other level. It was basically modern-day slavery. But, uh, like, yeah. we know from other films like Die Island for Murder, as we discussed previously, that at that time, like, uh, uh, 
just because you were a star athlete didn't mean you uh, you were taking a much of a payback at home. Quite often, you'd have been better off just staying at a factory. Um, yeah, and that's the same with actors too. They were they were they could actually relate that to themselves. The actors in the film when they were young people, just on a basic contract. You know, yeah, it wasn't a, the money that these people. I mean, a boxer today earns, you know, a top boxer earns, mil, you know, tens of millions of dollars a year from endorsements and stuff as well. But back then, I didn't realize that they literally were like low-paid scum of the earth. Yeah, according to the audience, like in the sort of ten to fifteen years after this film, uh, when you started to have uh, boxers like Muhammad Ali coming along, where they were much more vocal and directly involved in their own careers like Muhammad Ali he uh, didn't just leave his manager to do all the talking he uh, want, he said all his crazy trash talk on the camera because he wanted to sell tickets uh, yeah and he went and like a, part of that it was also a psychology sort of thing like you sort of um puff yourself up get into the get into the zone and sort of um uh, you, you say you're the best, so you make yourself the best. Now, that kind of works to agree, so long as you don't become self-delusional, that's, uh, psychology is a funny thing. Uh, yeah. But, um, uh, uh, yeah, it was sort of after this film that um, uh, a sporting person could take on more of their own identity. Yeah, and um, so the production of this film, um, in early 1956, Bogart was actually diagnosed with esophageal cancer, and he died on... January the 14th, 57. So he really had a quick downfall with his illness. Um, but Steiger, like Rod Steiger said that he was just a professional. It didn't matter if he was in pain or whatever. He would come in and he'd show up on time and do his job and go home at the end of the day, even though he was um, in pain, his eyes were watering, things like that. He never led on to sort of anyone that he was in. He was in real trouble. So the film did meet with mixed reviews, unlike on the waterfront, which was really critically successful. But this film appeals to me more one because of the sports element, and two, I just found it was a lot more of a sort of destination story. It sort of starts somewhere and finishes somewhere, and I kind of like that. And what did you think about this film, Matt? I think. Uh a lot of uh, the quality of the script has aged a lot and the acting has aged a lot better than on the waterfront. I, mm -hmm. I love them both in their, in their different ways. Like, you can uh, easily tell why waterfront has become so uh, sacred in status uh, from the beginning. But uh, the harder they fall, it, it's, uh, I think, any... It's like Casablanca. It's one of those black and whites that um, can appeal to those who don't like black and whites. Mm, I, yeah, I really, actually, this film, I really enjoyed it. It's probably one of the most enjoyable ones for me that we've done out of the, the group of films that we've picked so far. Uh, I think I just, you know, I'm into martial arts and all the rest of it as much as a girl can be, and I did what do you enjoy... Mean, do as much martial arts <laughs> I know, but it's sort of like a bit... Um, uh, what's she watching that for and I did really like the way they shot some of those boxing scenes um I did notice that in the foreground they sort of had the live action and then the back was like a matte painted but I think it worked quite well I mean they were sort of had limited resources to be able to shoot those big um scenes in the big boxing arenas and all the rest of it but I I still think and I think Humphrey Bogart I haven't seen that many of his films but this is the film I enjoy him in the most that I've seen him in.
the, um, you know, the sort of conspiracy to market this fighter who wasn't a fighter at all just to make money. And then, of course, when someone did actually die and the fighter felt responsible for that, it was sort of the moral ramifications of that. And it was good to see. Even, uh, even without the death, like the, the Humphrey Bogart, do see. Norman Bates was said that Rod Steiger was more the sort of person that should have been cast as Norman from Robert Block's description of Norman in the book. So that's how I always, you know, one of the things I always remember about reading about Rod Steiger. But as in the heat of the night... Uh, sorry, as, as far as the narrative of the book, uh, Perkins' um, portrayal reached the same goal but with a different route. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't I'll imagine anyone... That's psycho episode. We will, because that's going to be a... Grand episode. <laughs> It'll come up sooner than we think, but um, comedies, especially the ones she did with uh, Rock Hudson and Tony Randall, one of the loves of my life. So we're going to do Pillow Talk, 1959. Um, I'm not going to start singing the song, Matt, because I know once I start singing the Pillow Talk song, I'll never stop. Um, I can and see the rock hearts in your eyes. Yeah.